Nathanael said to the Lord Jesus Christ in John 1 verse 49, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Do you realize how amazing this is? On such a small contact, already he says, Rabbi, which we have discussed in the last session, thou art the Son of God. The, thou art the Son of God was the big question throughout the next three and a half years and eventually it brought about the crucifixion of the Lord but Nathaniel got it straight away and I think that's incredible. God obviously helped him and revealed it to him. The Jews to this day don't believe it possible that God could have a son. I don't think they did in those days in quite the same way, of course, as we know he, he did have a son. So the, we come back to the question, how did Nathaniel know? And always one has to go back to the Old Testament because the New Testament is a commentary upon the Old Testament. And we go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman. What does it mean, the seed of the woman? There must have been generations that struggled with that concept. Where was the man? And obviously, as the seed of the woman, this was no ordinary man. This was one who could overcome the serpent of sin. But still, how would it happen that he could come into the world? We come to the second of Samuel, chapter 7 and verse 14, the promise to David, and we find that he is a son of David. Now, that's a, is this the same person, the seed of a woman, the son of David? That means he's the seed of a man. How do you work out these apparent contradictions? Because it says in the second of Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. But again, that leaves us a problem. He's David's son and he's God's son. There's another contradiction. We have to wait until the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 and verse 14, where Yahweh himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But wait a minute. A virgin shall conceive. I can see that as the seed of the woman. But everybody knows a virgin cannot conceive. The enigma grows as we go through scripture until we come to the New Testament. That passage from Isaiah 7 is cited in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. But then in Matthew chapter 3 verse 17, at the baptism of John, the Lord Jesus Christ heard the words, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And we might say he had no need to be baptised of John. John saw that. 
Suffer it to be so now to fulfill all righteousness. He humbled himself. This is remarkable. He knew he was the son of God, but he humbled himself. It didn't result in pride. He was determined right from the outset. He was determined to do his father's will. And in this way, as God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely unique. He was the authority. Not everybody recognized it. But no one could ever end up as the king of Israel upon the throne of David when we had the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved of the Father, available with his perfection. And why, why did God bring this out in the open? This is my beloved son. It was necessary. So you go and say, well, a virgin conceived, you see, and God was her father, the Holy Spirit caused her to conceive. Nobody would believe you. But here there is a spoken testimony from heaven to bring confirmation that this is the one spoken of. You know, after his baptism, he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. The tempter came to him. Some official, I suppose, of the leaders of the Jews trying to make a compromise with him. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, the tempter says to him, If thou be the Son of God, why did he say that? If thou be the Son of God. It must have been reported that the voice came from heaven. If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. And the Lord said, Thou shalt not tempt Yahweh thy God. In other words, he did not deny that he was the Son of God. Neither in a way did he confirm it. It was a question of his authority, if thou be the Son of God. And the question of his authority will come up again later. And so the devil left him for a season. But again and again and again, the leaders of Jews would return to try and bring him down. From Matthew we move to the Gospel of Mark. How does that Gospel begin? Mark 1 verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is a, a critical aspect of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does still not tell us how he became the Son of God. So we turn to Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, the angel appears to Mary. Verse 32, he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Here's another problem. The son of the highest. But his father is David. How can this be? And we come to verse 34. Mary had the same problem, you see. Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. 
And the angel answered and said unto her, Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. But wait a minute. A virgin conceiving, the Holy Spirit causing conception. Is this really possible? What effect did it have upon him? Uh, can, we, can we be sure this is true? Yes, we can. Just read the Gospels. See the difference between him and all other men. It says, shall the holy thing shall be born of thee. Right from the beginning he was holy. Not as one brother once said to me, Jesus had real sin. And I considered that to be blasphemy. And in which case, if that was true, he had no redeemer. He actually was talking about the body of Jesus. He took it that flesh was real sin. Did God make real sin? Is that what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit power? Real sin? But also we find out here that the Spirit is power. It is not a person. If it was a person, we'd have to say not that he was the Son of God, that he was the Son of the Holy Spirit. How wrong can the church be? We'll turn to Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Here is the proof that is required that Jesus is the Son of God not God the Son, my beloved Son. And then in verse 23, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. But Joseph was not the son of Heli. In Matthew chapter 1, we have Joseph's genealogy. And the names are completely different to that which we have here in Luke chapter 3. So this is not Joseph's genealogy, some suppose it is. It is actually Mary's genealogy. And the indication of this is here in that verse. He was as was supposed. Now that phrase or that word supposed is used elsewhere in the New Testament but its literal meaning is to do by law. Because Joseph had married Mary, he must have adopted the Lord Jesus Christ as his son. So legally, you might say, he was the son of Joseph. This gave him a right to the throne of David, which came through Joseph. Through Mary was a right of the inheritance. And so the, the genealogy here goes backwards. Now, there's got to be a reason for that. There's got to be a purpose why it's going backwards through time. What is this really indicating is that Mary came from Heli, and therefore Joseph had Heli as an ancestor. And Mathat and Levi and Melchi and Jammer and Joseph, and so it went on. 
It goes backwards till you come to the end of this genealogy and it says, and notice of course the expression the son of is not there, which was of, which was of, and here, which was of Adam, which was of God. What's the point? What Luke is really bringing out here is that Jesus was the Son of God. We would never suggest that Adam was the Son of God. He was made by God, but he was not his only begotten Son. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. So you go through all this genealogy, and the critical point that Luke is trying to bring out is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It is so critical to us honouring him and accepting who he is. Jesus is the Son of God. So why, why go all through all these names then? Why didn't he go directly? To make a very important point. That was not only that Joseph is not Jesus' father, but God is, but to emphasize that our Lord was of the same nature as ourselves. He was the same nature of all those that he came to save. Let us turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. And here coming to Hebrews, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 2, we read in verse 9 of this chapter, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. And then he's quoting here, of course, from Psalm 8. But he puts this, this little phrase in, for the suffering of death. That's not in Psalm 8. Psalm 8 tells us that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Now we know why. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. There is one thing God is, cannot do in the salvation of the man. He cannot die. He is truly eternal. He sent his son to overcome sin. And to do that he had to be identical to us. And to die. So we continue here in uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 2 and in verse 10. For it became him. Who is him here? It became God. The him here is God. For whom are all things? That's why it's God. Or on account of are all things. And by him through whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So it's God who made the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. The all things, of course, also comes from Psalm 8. And then we move to verse 14 here in uh, Hebrews chapter 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil of sin. God can't die. Someone else had to do it. And it couldn't be done by any normal man. It had to be done by the Son of God, specially provided for the purpose. 
and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, the bondage of sin. It's the devil in our lives, isn't it? For verily he, God, took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on, on Christ his Son, not the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren. You see the margin there where it says, he taketh not hold of angels, but of the seed of Abraham he taketh hold. Why do we need to bring this up? Because this is a passage the Trinitarians trust in. To them, when he took hold, not hold on the nature of angels, they said, that's Jesus Christ. He made the decision to come to earth as a man to conquer sin. Jesus forelived, and he didn't. It's linked with verse 10. This is why I emphasize in verse 10. It became God to do it. And it is no good providing an angel who are immortal. He provided a son who was born of a woman made under the law. So verse 17 says, Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he's able to succor them that are tempted. And you cannot tempt angels and you cannot tempt God. It took a man just like you and me but with a very special birth. We'll come to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Here we have it in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. It wasn't the law that was weak, it's God's law. And as Paul truly says, the law is holy. Why, it was the flesh that was weak. No one ever kept the law perfectly. And therefore God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin. Where did he condemn sin? Where it has its power, of course, in the flesh. What about the likeness? Does that mean the same but different? That's an oxymoron. Now, Brother, Brother Roberts points out that the word likeness here means a very similitude. It means exactly the same. Is there a difference in Jesus' flesh? No, there is not. And yet the Gospels show him to be a man like no other who ever lived. So let me just say something about the Gospels first before going further. Matthew was written for the Jews. This is not my idea, this I have read, but I, I think it follows through very well. Matthew is a gospel written for the Jews. It argues about from a Jewish perspective. Mark is a gospel of action. Do this, do that. He went here, he went there. Like the Romans, war, action, doing. A gospel for the Romans. 
Luke has all the discourses and the parables. There's a lot of reasoning. That's the Greek philosophy. Not that it is Greek, but it's dealing with the Greeks. But what about the Gospel of John? Altogether different, isn't it? The Gospel of John is written for the Ecclesia. And it's on a spiritual level which we are expected to understand. So we'll come to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. In the Gospel of John and chapter 1, here we read from the beginning of the Gospel. It links, of course, with creation in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Majestic words. But what does it mean? The Logos is not the spoken word. It is the thought. It is the concept which lies behind the spoken word. And since we read in verse 14 that the word became flesh, we know that what is here is in the mind of God, right from the time when he created the heavens and the earth, he knew his son and was preparing for his son to come into the world 4,000 years later than the, the beginning of day one of creation. So we read, all things were made by it. There is no neuter gender in the Greek, um, just like French and other languages. Everything has to be male or female. English, we have a neuter gender. So the translation should have been here. And check it with the diaglot. All things were made by it. And without it was not anything made that was made, that is, without the Logos. In it was life, and the life was the light of men. The Logos was the, the concept, the idea, which the architect had to develop his world and to people it eventually with a godly, righteous people. So, really, what we've got in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, is the divine genealogy of Christ. We turn to verse 14 here, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh, the Logos was made flesh, dwelt among us. John dwelt three and a half years with him. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, on the Mount of Transfiguration, full of grace, and truth. And John expresses this with the deepest sense of deepest sense of wonder and of admiration and thrill. So we read in verse 16, and of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth, he picked that up from verse 14 full of grace and truth. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Isn't this marvellous? 
This is a concept which only the Ecclesia could ever understand. Those to whom it is given by God. We'll come to John chapter 17. Now John chapter 17 is the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ which is expressed at shortly before he entered into the garden where he was arrested. But in John chapter 17, we start in verse 1. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son. And then we come to verse 4. He says, in his prayer, I have glorified thee on the earth, my word he had. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, he had. And on the tree he was able to say, it is finished. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, which the glory which I had with thee before the world and some say there you are Jesus pre-existed he was in glory with the Father and decided to come to earth as a man no 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 what he is saying here the glory existed the glory was scheduled in the Father's plans for his son when the right time came and the time is coming for him to be glorified after his resurrection. And he's praying for it. So we read in Hebrews 1 verse 4. He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than the angels. And by inheritance with a more excellent name, higher than that even of the angels, our Lord is uniquely qualified to become the King. Yes. Verse um, 22 of this John 17 says, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. That's not written to the world. That's written for the Ecclesia to be comforted and to be strengthened by. That we may be one. As the Father and Son are one, as he says in John 10 verse 30. I and the Father are one. And that's where our lives in Christ are leading. But to come back to Jesus Christ. What was the effect of his divine origin from heaven? Since we read the Gospels, there is a difference somewhere. How was he different to us? And the only real answer I can give to that is found in Isaiah chapter 11. You might like to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. And here in Isaiah chapter 11 we read of him, you know, the spirit of Yahweh, verse 2. The Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. He was born by the Spirit, that holy thing. The Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. 
the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. That's all very different to me and you. We're not like that. Quick understanding. I struggle to understand. This is the Father's mind who has said, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But the Lord Jesus Christ had a brain, genius really, which made him of quick understanding. He had the spirit of wisdom and understanding, like Solomon, only more so. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh. We're not like that. That's something we're trying to learn. And when it said quick understanding, it means, as the margin says, a scent or a smell. It has to do with the breathing. It's the breathing of the atmosphere of the Spirit and the breathing out again of the words of the Spirit. Because it has to do with breathing and this quick understanding, Brother Alfred Nichols, one-time editor of the magazine, said, a flair, and I like that. He had a flair for the divine things. None of us are born that way. We have to develop it. And you see how then it works out in verse 4. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor. Can mankind judge in righteousness? We're living in a desperately unfair world lacking in true justice and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked I can't do that you can't do that how many mistakes have been made under the death sentence this man makes no mistakes and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So uh, John, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 25 of his gospel, he said, He needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That was his father's doing. That was his father's education with his son. He had a divine education. It says in Isaiah 54 and verse 13, And all thy children shall be taught of Yahweh. And if all the children shall be taught of Yahweh, how much more his beloved son. It was a wonderful education. I wish I could have had it. Right, you see the result at 12 years of age. His parents thought him sorrowing. That's an understatement after three days having lost the Son of God. But in Luke chapter 2 verse 49, they find him in the temple and he says, Wish ye not that I must be about my father's house? Already at 12, he was convinced of his divine destiny and origin. My father's house. And with his determination, he was carrying it through. Let's come to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. 
And now in John chapter 3 and verse 8. John 3 verse 8. Christ is talking to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And he says in verse 8 to him, The wind bloweth that the wind, the spirit, the pneuma, the Old Testament of Ruach, the wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. What's he saying? Brother Thomas points out that what he means here is that the Spirit spoke from Genesis to Malachi. And Nicodemus, though he was a ruler and a teacher of the Jews, did not understand the Old Testament. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. We, if we're truly born of the Word of God, are not understood. Our lives are on an altogether different plane and, and people puzzle. They can't work us out. And I've had doctors say to me, I suppose if I was a Christadelphian, I would understand you better. But they're not. And they can't understand. Not altogether. So we read in verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, thee, We speak, we, the Father and I speak, is the God's words. We speak that we do know. He'd been taught by his father. And testify that we have seen. His father had shown him much. And ye receive not our witness of father and son. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So there is a realm that is higher. And Nicodemus hadn't reached it. And we are trying to reach it. The understanding of the Father's mind in the higher spiritual things revealed in the Word of God. And we read in verse 13, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. We use that to show that there is no immortal soul going to heaven. I don't think it's improper to use it, but it isn't strictly what the verse is saying. What it is saying is, no man like Nicodemus, none of us, have ascended in our minds to grasp the spiritual things of the Father in their fullness. Only Jesus Christ. Never man spake like this man. Only he which came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Well, he wasn't in heaven, but he was living in the heavenly realm of his Father. So, God spoke to him directly. No mediatorship. We get that in Galatians 3, verse 20. And he was strengthened. How is he strengthened? Come to Psalm 80 
Psalm 80. Some misunderstanding has been shown on this psalm. Uh, we read in verse 15 of Psalm 80, The vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou makest strong for thyself. The branch is also the Hebrew word for son. I can see why it says branch, because it's talking about the vineyard. But it's also the son. Made strong. Verse 17. Let thy hand be upon the man, the ish, not the Adam. This is the man born of the Spirit, the ish, of thy right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. Made is strong? It's one Hebrew word, which means strengthened, much like the name of Hezekiah, strengthened of Yah. The word is used of others, it's used of Rehoboam, for example, in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17, and it's used of others. How was he strengthened? It's not relating to made, manufactured. It's the same as us. Well, the obvious example to how he was strengthened is in Luke 22, verse 43, when he's in the garden. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And then verse 44 says, as a result of the strengthening, and being in agony, he prayed the more earnestly. And all this was predestinated. We come to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 here. Romans 8 verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Foreknew, yes, as John 1 verse 1, before even he existed. And he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. It is not we who are predestinated. It is the pattern of the Son to which the Son and we must conform, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's the pattern of the Son not us that's predestinated. And all this gives our Lord unique authority. We mentioned we'd come back to the question of authority. Turn to Luke chapter 20. <clears throat> Luke chapter 20, verse 1. Luke 20, verse 1. This is the question of authority. You'll soon see that in verse uh, 1 of Luke 20. And it came to pass that on one of those days... As he taught to the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders. They ganged up on him and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? They knew they hadn't given it to him. How dare he? And the Lord raised the question of John's baptism. Was it of heaven? Or was it of men? And they wouldn't answer. Not only because they were frightened of any response of the people, but they knew they couldn't answer. If they had said that his baptism was from heaven, he testified of Jesus that he was the Son of God. 
and their question would have been answered. And they didn't want it answered in that way. So you come to, uh, he didn't answer, did he? He just raised the question instead. You see this in verse 8, Jesus said unto them, neither tell you by what authority I do these things. He wasn't being rude about this. He was pointing out to them, it was clear whose authority he had. And they should have acknowledged it and accepted it. In verse uh, 13, Verse 13, and then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, it may be they will reverence him when they see him. The Lord of the vineyard. They knew who the Lord of the vineyard was. They knew the Lord, it's from Isaiah chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard. They knew the Lord of the vineyard was God. I will send my beloved son. Indirectly, he is saying he is the beloved son of the Father, but he's not saying it directly. So what do we find in this parable of vineyard in Isaiah 5? How does it continue the parable in verse 23? Listen to these words. This is the summation of the parable. Woe to them which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. And they knew that. They knew it was talking about them. And in verse 13, then, he gives that indirect authority. Sorry, he gives that indirect answer to his authority, which left them powerless to arrest him. In verse 19, And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. You didn't have to be too clever to see that. And they watched him and sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, so that they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. They sent spies. They're getting pretty low, aren't they? And so they question him. Should they pay tribute to Caesar? Show me a denarius. He had no money, but they soon produced one. Whose image and superscription? We are in God's image and likeness. That's how man was made in the beginning. Do you get the point? Because we're in the image of our creator, we owe all our lives to him. To love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with our might. We are his. The Sadducees come along with a question of the resurrection. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They didn't accept the idea of resurrection. What does he say? Ye do err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. Interesting. Neither the power of God. We come to verse 41 here. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, 
Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calls his son Lord. Yeah, now that's not normal. How is he then his son? Once again, he's David's son. But he's not mentioning himself. But the source of his authority is obvious. He is Emmanuel, God with us. They knew he was David's son. They kept all the genealogical records in the temple. They must have looked it up when he was 12 years old, if not earlier. They knew who he was, the son of David. And he said, you know not the power of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So brethren and sisters, Christ is both David's son and son of God. As such, he is greater than any king of Israel that has gone before or any other king the world has known and is even higher than the angels. <clears throat> what did Nicodemus say in John 3 verse 2? We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest except Emmanuel. God be with him. They knew. There was no need to ask this question. But they wanted to get at him. Brethren and sisters, to whom should we totally submit our lives? To whom would we give absolute full authority as king without any reservations whatsoever never to any not normal king only to this one the son of god could mankind ever completely surrender so we come to the song of solomon in chapter 5 the song of solomon chapter 5 because I want to finish each session on the, in the Song of Solomon for you. And in chapter 5, <clears throat> we have from verse 2, the bride, that is the ecclesia, to be the bride of Christ. And she says, I sleep, but my heart waketh, into the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, and hear his voice, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Israel was slow to respond when he came. He spent his nights on the mountains of Israel in prayer. They were not sure. Verse 3, she says, I have put off my coat. How have I put it on? I've washed my feet. How should I defile them? The law was what she followed. But the Lord tried, he tried really hard to draw their attention. He healed the sick and even raised the dead. Verse 4, my beloved put in his hand to the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open my, to my beloved, but he'd gone. Three and a half years quickly passed. She says, my hands dropped with myrrh and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. He had left behind the fragrance of his life and of his teaching. 
I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and had gone. He was at the right hand of the Father that is in heaven. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Persecution against them broke out, the preachers of the gospel, in verse 7. Verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, tell ye him that I am sick with love, lovesick. That's the way we should feel about him. And so the virgins, those who are interested in the truth, say to the bride, What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved, that thou dost so charge us? Now look at this. This is what we should be saying. My beloved is white or bright, as he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. My beloved is white, bright and ruddy, godly. Ruddy, human, the chiefest among 10,000. And she gives, in verses 11 to 16, a spiritual description. For example, in verse 16, his mouth is most sweet. It's his speech. He's altogether lovely. He went about doing good. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And the virgins respond. She had interested now. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women? Whither, whither is thy beloved turned aside that we may seek him with thee? They want to know the truth. They want to come into Christ. And she says, My beloved has gone down into his garden to the beds of spices to feed in the gardens and to gather the lilies. He's here. He walks in the midst of the ecclesias. And therefore we can say in verse 3, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine.